Amen. Well, you guys can have a seat. We got all sorts of fun stuff uh, this morning. I noticed as we were singing, we didn't light the candles or the electronic candles, I guess, as they are. Um, you know, everybody's got their mask on, so it feels like we're all ready to go rob a train. Um, but uh, it's an interesting morning. But it's good to be back with you guys, isn't it? It's good to see half your faces rather than none at all. I can't even begin to tell you how weird it is to drop a teaching out into the abyss and hope that people listen. And so it's good to be able to be in front of you again. Let's all admit this morning that this is a bit odd, is it not? And this is not what we'd hoped for, I think, three weeks into COVID, where we thought, oh, we'll get back together and it will be joyous and happy. Can we admit that as well? But let's also not confuse the fact that while this is difficult, that doesn't mean the Spirit is not here. Because as uh, Jonathan said in 1 Samuel, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Amen? Amen. And so even though we've got a small crew here, and we will for the next couple services, we rejoice in the fact that the Lord is with us. So thank you to all of you for your flexibility and your commitment to one another throughout the last three-plus months. I know it's been hard, um, but we are moving forward in Christ. Now, just as we are here to celebrate in one way this morning, we're also here to mourn and to lament. And we mourn that we're not all together. We mourn that some of our brothers and sisters are still at home and unable to meet with us. And we mourn because of the state of our nation and the pain of so many of our neighbors and so many of the men and women in this church. And so let's pause for a moment to lament and pray. And as we take a moment of silence, I realize the kids are still going to be loud, and that's okay. Kids don't know what lament is yet. Um, let's spend a moment to lament the loss of life in our nation and the sickness that people have gone through. Uh, let's lament the racial and political divides. Let's uh, lament the division in our country. Let's lament the fact that uh, the men and women that serve us in law enforcement, even within our own church, are in the midst of being slandered right now. And let's silently pray for God's intervention by his spirit and through his church. So let's do that now uh, just for a, a brief moment. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us gain your heart as we hear your word now. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Why don't you guys open to Mark chapter 12, verse 18, if you can. Mark 12, 18. And we're going to continue as we do, reading through the Bible. That's how we make sure that we're getting the Lord's word as best as we can and not one man's opinion here. Now, pastors are asked some odd questions sometimes, and kiddos, you can listen up because you may have the answers to these. I don't know. But sometimes pastors get asked questions like, since Adam was created and not born, did he have a belly button? Does anybody know the answer to that one? Another one is, is there anything that God cannot do? Like create a rock so big he can't lift it. You guys heard that one before? It's amazing what causes difficulty for some people. I've literally seen people get tripped up by that second one. But in these two questions and in many others that seem to cause people to slide off the rails of Christianity, they're usually asking the wrong question, focusing on the wrong thing. You see, it doesn't matter if Adam had a belly button or if God can create that big of a rock. But when we're talking with someone we love, when we're talking with someone who's struggling with their faith, or when we're talking with a non-believer, we feel this intense pressure to be able to answer any and every question immediately on the spot. 
We feel this need to have a hefty apologetic for every conflict that a person has with the Bible. But at the end of the day, while these questions might have some validity for those asking, we all need to remember that there really is only one major question that needs to be answered, and that's this. What do you do with the life, death, resurrection, witness, and ascension of Christ? All other answers come in as a far second to that question. In answering this question, we are able to answer so much more. And I feel like right now, much of our country and much of the world is not even remotely near that question because there's so many other questions clouding their mind. But as we'll see, if we go to that question first, from there we'll distinguish or, or determine what other answers there are to other questions that are plaguing our society. And in our text this morning, the Sadducees come with a similar false dilemma as did Adam have a belly button? They, along with other members of the religious elite, have come to Jesus furious that he cleansed the temple and caused a ruckus, furious that followers are calling him the Messiah, the anointed one. And so starting in last week's text that we looked at online last week on the topic of paying taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees came to Jesus to try and trap him so that he would lose half of his following. It was a political ploy because that's all politics is, is trying to get the other person who disagrees with you to lose some of their following. That's all politics is. And last week, Jesus answered in wisdom and caused the Pharisees to look foolish. This week, the Sadducees come to him and ask him a question in which they think they will trap him and make him look foolish. They ask him a question about the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. But what they believe is going to trap Jesus, you can almost see their arrogance oozing out of the text, actually turns out to be a false dilemma. And Jesus uses it to show the Sadducees that they are really ignorant of God, of his scriptures, and of his power. And this will give us some detail around what eternal life looks like, yes, but it will always, uh, which is good, but it will also give us, more importantly, especially for the season we're in now, it'll give us Jesus' answer to help us to stand firm in the hope of the resurrection. And that's what I've titled the, the teaching today, Standing Firm in the Hope of the Resurrection, which we all need so badly today. I don't know about you guys, but life has felt like standing on shifting sand for the last three months, has it not? And part of coming to church, part of being part of church and engaging even in the, the meekness of online teachings uh, has been standing firm in the one thing that we know to be true while everything else around us shifts. So let's read our text for this morning from Mark 12, starting in verse 18, and we'll see what it says. Mark 12, 18, And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. Now, you'd think that the brothers would get the picture at this point, and they'd start calling her, I don't know, the Black Widow or something, right? But everybody just keeps coming to her, right? Everybody keeps coming, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when the, they rise again, whose wife will she be? And you can almost read in there a slight chuckle among the Sadducees. Let's see how he deals with this one. For the seven had her as a wife. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What we see first here is the fact that Jesus is just pointed. But that's not my first point. My first point is this. We see the trap of a false dilemma. The trap of a false dilemma. And it so saddens me as a pastor when I see so many Christians stuck and hurting and broken in their faith because of false dilemmas. False dilemmas. Last week, we were introduced to the Sadducees along with the other political parties present at the time of Jesus. And the Sadducees, we learned, were liberal in politics, willingly partnering with Rome to make sure that they held their power. But religiously, they were actually more conservative of all the groups. They based their beliefs only on the Torah, the first five books alone. If you've ever been to a King James-only church, you'll hear the pastor say things like, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. And that is these guys. They, they said, well, the Torah is the oldest, so we're going to go with just that. Forget the rest of the scripture, right? But these guys were the conservative of the day, religiously. And most of the statements about an afterlife actually emerged not from the Torah, but from the prophets and the writings, which Jesus believed in, he taught from, and he was very adamant about. And so the Sadducees, they were very sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. It's a terrible pastor pun, but I had to throw it in at some point. They knew that Jesus did believe in the resurrection. And what is amazing is that most of the people around Jesus believed in a resurrection after death because, let's pause for a second, and kiddos, maybe you can help me with your immense biblical knowledge. Did Jesus raise anybody to life prior to going into Jerusalem? Didn't he have a good friend? What was his name? Everybody say it out loud. Lazarus. You see, Jesus had already resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And this is what he said to his sister Martha, Lazarus' sister Martha, in John 11. John 11, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The Sadducees knew that Jesus believed this and knew that his followers did as well. And so they come to Jesus, not to converse, not to dialogue and learn from one another, but they come with a preconceived notion, desiring to make him look like a fool by trapping him in a false dilemma of their own devising. And these are some of the differences, you see, between religious hypocrisy and true discipleship, by the way. Religious hypocrisy will build ways of thinking based on personal opinion and then seek to back it up with Scripture cherry-picked. True discipleship will seek to understand Scripture instead and will build opinions from its foundation. And when we don't have a solid view of what Scripture says on the topic, true discipleship will remain silent. Religious hypocrisy will seek to make a fool out of those that disagree with them just for the sake of making fools out of them. And true discipleship will seek out truth together, regardless of the starting point. But these men, these Sadducees, were religious hypocrites. And so the false dilemma that they bring to Jesus is regarding the afterlife and the resurrection. And they use a section from the Torah, from Deuteronomy 5. Let's go ahead and look at that on the screen. This is from Deuteronomy 5, verses 5 and 6. This is the law of what's called leveret marriage. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. 
Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Based on this law, they, the Sadducees created a false dilemma that forces the afterlife to be governed by this earthly law given to Israel. But in saying what they say, they betray that they really don't know God's character, his plan, or his word. All it shows is their hatred for Christ and their desire to have power over him. They cherry-picked a verse and applied it to something it wasn't intended to be used for. Guys, this is rampant in the church. It's rampant in the church because we have this horrible view of, this, of the Spirit and its inspiration of Scripture, and we think that we can make whatever we want out of Scripture whenever we want to back our opinion. That is not the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture is to humble ourselves to what Scripture says and to seek as a community that truth in the fullness of what God intended. And so like last week with the Pharisees, Jesus is supposedly cornered here. If he says he doesn't believe in the resurrection, he undoes his entire purpose. If he says he does believe in the resurrection, then they believe that they've trapped him into saying that the resurrection will cause men and women to disobey God. But Jesus rises above their earthly false dilemma and gives them a wise answer. That's the next point I want to give you. He gives them the answer of power and truth. The answer of power and truth. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or afterlife, but even in their example, they're presenting it as if the afterlife is simply just dead bodies coming back to existence, reanimation similar to the current life. That would be pretty, pretty sad and pathetic, wouldn't it? You just kind of get reanimated. Well, that's what many people, I think, have their theology uh, in their theology as if they got their view of the afterlife from Looney Tunes, where we all play harps in heaven or we stand in flames down in the pit. But Jesus reminds them that their question betrays their ignorance on two topics, the word of God, his truth, and the power of God. First, they misunderstand the word, the truth of God. They had only taken what backed their opinion and their view of religion and cast aside the rest of Scripture. But even with the Torah, in the Garden of Eden, after sin had entered, God proclaimed that one would come forth from the seed of woman to crush the head of the chaos monster, the serpent, and undo the curse of death that had overcome them. From that very first portion of Scripture, God says there will be a plan to undo this mess that you humans have created. Something would need to happen. And to Jesus' point, even in Genesis, God states that he is an eternal God who enters into everlasting covenant with his people. Take a look on the screen at Genesis 17 here. This is Genesis 17, 7. He says, and I will establish my covenant between me, this is God speaking, and you, Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an, what's that word there? Everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is God's covenant with Abraham and those after him. And this is why Jesus points out, using the, the story of the burning bush where Moses and God speak, that if death was the end, then God would not say he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would say he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as if they were dead. The covenant of marriage, you see, in what this passage tells us, is one that becomes void at death. I remember when we were installing membership and I said to someone, I used Ephesians 5, and I said, look at how marriage is an image of the covenant you're supposed to have with God and his people in the church. And the person responded to me and said, Hans, how dare you put marriage below the covenant with 
people in the church. And I said, I'm not doing that. Look at Ephesians 5. Marriage is a reflection. Dear church, what covenant will remain when you go into the afterlife? Is it with your spouse or with his people? It's with God and his people. Our relationship as brothers and sisters will outlast my relationship with my wife. My relationship with my wife as a sister in Christ will outlast my relationship with her as spouses. That's what this scripture says. That's how important the covenant between God and his people is. And look at what a mockery the church in general has made of this idea of covenant faithfulness to one another, covenant faithfulness to God. You can go in and out of it just as much as you can go in and out of marriage these days. The covenants with God and his people is built to be everlasting, and this magnifies his character to never leave nor forsake. And then the rest of the Old Testament promises that resurrection will happen. Take a look at these couple of scriptures. First from Isaiah 26, 19. Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. This is from Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. One day, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will have to answer for how we've lived this life and whether or not we are in covenant faithfulness with God, whether or not we've accepted his free gracious gift to bring us into covenant in spite of the fact that we're sinners. This law that's talked about in this text, the Leveret marriage law, was given exactly because of the existence of sin and death in the world, which goes away in the afterlife. In those days, women were limited in their place in society, and children were needed for survival in tending crops and caring for you in, the old, in your old age. They didn't have grocery stores. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have Medicaid or Medicare. And so if you didn't have children, you starved to death at a young age, or if you made it through your youth, as an older person, you would die. Having children was survival. And whether that makes sense to us or not in today's world, without a husband and children, much like the third world nations of today, women would be destitute and uncared for. And so this law shows God's heart to care for the vulnerable. This law was given to make sure that the vulnerable would be cared for and that the lineage of Israel within the covenant of the land, which God gave them, would be continued. When this was not followed throughout the Old Testament, and we have examples of it in Genesis 38 in the story of Onan, we have an example of it in a man who doesn't wish to redeem Ruth in the story of Ruth. In those cases, God responds with anger and criticism towards the men who are not willing to care for the women involved. It was not intended to be utilized to construct any idea of what the afterlife would be for. It was for the express purpose of caring for the vulnerable and continuing the covenant faithfulness of God and his people. But you see, this is what religious hypocrisy does. It forces us to take Scripture out of context and separate it from the character of God to use it for our own purposes. And not only do they not know the truth of God by his Scripture, but they also do not know the power of God. Power is so much a part of God's being that power is one of God's nicknames. Did you guys know that? When you pray, you can literally say, instead of dear father, you can say dear power. Where do we get that from? Well, listen to Jesus speaking of his enthronement and the return in Mark 14, 62. This is on trial, and he says that he is the Messiah. And he says, you will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, seated at the right hand of 
power. Who's he referring to there? God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and coming with the clouds of heaven. So God is the ultimate power. Quoting from the book of Daniel, Jesus refers to the Ancient day of Days here as power. His position as power. And let's go to this passage in your Bibles, if you got your Bibles open. Go to Daniel chapter 7. We've hit on this a lot uh, as we've gone through Mark because it's very much a part of Mark's background for Jesus. Go to Daniel 7, verse 13. You should have this underlined, circled, highlighted, everything, because this is a massive uh, text when it comes to Jesus' identity. In Daniel 7.13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that's the, the power, seated on the throne, and was presented before him. And to him, the Ancient of Days, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." In his enthronement, Jesus sets up a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom and will not be destroyed. Now, interesting, this is a total side note uh, in the midst of, of, of everything that's going on here. If you were to read the Septuagint, for you adults here, if you were to read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the word here for all peoples and nations is the word uh, where we get genus or, or genos in the, in the Greek. And it's translated into English in the Septuagint as races. So racial reconciliation is part of God's kingdom. That's part of why it's important to me is because it's right here in the text. All nations, all peoples, all languages, all ethnicities. In Revelation, it's called ethnos or ethnicities. Will sit underneath him. So death is not the end for those that are citizens of his kingdom. Reconciliation with God and with one another fulfilled in the midst of his kingdom is the future. The power of God is not just found in the fact that God gives us an afterlife. It's in the fact that the overarching narrative of Scripture is that God is actively working and rolling out his plan to destroy sin, death, violence, hatred, division, lies, and all that is found in the kingdom of darkness. And as part of that plan, Jesus came to earth as God incarnate, God in the flesh. And he lived and ministered and proclaimed this fact. And then he died as the substitutionary sacrifice for you and for me so that our sin would be removed. Because of this, you and I are justified in God's sight and we are able to be reconciled in covenant relationship with him. And then as a precursor to God's power over all of death, Jesus resurrected from the dead and was seen by 500 brothers. In this power, God was substantiating the truth that one day, that same power to raise the dead will be used to resurrect some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And in that day, God will bring an end to all who honored Jesus with their lips, but showed only hypocrisy in their actions." God will establish in that day his rule of love in which love of God and love of one another will be the law of the land. God will enthrone himself on a throne in which justice rules and righteousness reigns. And in that day, every one of us will be humbled because we will realize how far away from his character our hearts have been and how blinded we have become because of our own idolatry. 
We can be assured of this future because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that causes us to gather on this Lord's day and to rejoice even in the midst of a world full of heartache. Hear the assurance of the Apostle Paul as he mentions the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians 6.14. Let's look on the screen there. In 6 Corinthians 6.14, it says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You see, this is the question everybody needs to ask. What do you do with the resurrection of Jesus? I don't care about any other question until a person answers that. I've had some of the longest debates with people who want to be atheistic or agnostic or completely just dismiss this idea of God, and they can never answer that question. What do you do with the resurrection of Jesus? Why? Because they have to say it didn't happen. That's the only answer that makes sense to not believe in Jesus Christ. And there's too much evidence against that fact. It was his resurrection that declared Jesus as king over the kingdom that cannot be moved. Let's look at what Paul says here in Romans 1.4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It was the resurrection of the dead that declared him to be that Son of God, that Son of Man uh, from uh, Daniel chapter 7, in power. Jesus knew that even in the midst of religious hypocrisy, here in Mark chapter 12, our text for today, Even in the midst of that hypocrisy and even staring down the crucifixion that awaited him at the end of that Holy Week, even in the midst of conflict among the very people that were supposed to be God's people, Jesus could rise above the confusion and the trap of political false dilemmas, and he could look to the truth of God and the power of God. Dear brothers and sisters, today I want us to look to the proclamation of Jesus and the example of Jesus, that when all else is chaotic around us and when we're looking at what seems to be an unwinnable situation, when we're looking at what seems to be victory for the kingdom of darkness, we need to remember what unites us and where our hope rests. In these days, we need to stand firm in the hope of the resurrection. And that's the third point for today. Stand firm in the hope of the resurrection. This is literally your application point for today. Don't waver and fall into anything else. Stand firm in the hope of the resurrection. And if we do that, you will see how it plays into all the other things here in a moment. Dear church, we are living in hard times, and that is obvious to anyone that's paying attention. Days in which we might even wonder if the plan of God has failed or if God has turned a blind eye. But the truth is that even though our time faces distinct issues that other generations may not have faced, they are not all that dissimilar from what the church of the past and the saints of the past have endured for over 2,000 years. And in those dark times, the church united around one common truth, that Jesus has died to purchase us salvation, that Jesus has been resurrected and enthroned as our king. And just as our earlier reading declared, and let's go ahead and throw that up on the screen there from from, uh, Philippians, We know that because of Jesus' sacrificial work, we are assured that he will, at the end of the, the verse there, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And this power will not just limit itself in simple reanimation. This power will bring all that is wrong to be right one day. This power will remove all sickness and the threat of death. This power will bring all political ideologies and parties to their knees. Praise God for that. This power will finally destroy the inherent sin of mankind to harm one another. 
This power will destroy the fact that we want to take power over one another and show partiality to one another. This power will do away with the religious hypocrites in the midst of the church that may proclaim to follow the Prince of Peace, but by their actions and their social media posts do nothing but bring peace, but fight against peace. And this power will unite all peoples, nations, colors, and languages under one loving, gracious king so that we might love him and love one another. From the resurrection, everything else is answered. In our age of false dilemmas and conflict within and without the church, where everything is painted as a paranoid response to one another and fear is the ruling factor, church, we need to keep our hope founded on the resurrection and all that it entails. It may seem like God is not active, but he is because he's separating the wheat from the chaff. It is in this hope of the resurrection that we will be sustained. Listen to the Apostle Paul's confession in Acts 24. Let's look at that on the screen. This is when he was standing on trial facing death. Paul says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. If our hope is set in Christ and his good news of forgiveness, of sin, and his good news of resurrection to eternal life, brothers and sisters, we will be able to stand firm in Christ no matter what each day brings. We will be able to parse through the nuttiness and the craziness and the noise and figure out what the truth of God actually says. Standing firm in the hope of the resurrection will draw us further into the everlasting covenant with Christ. Standing firm in the hope of the resurrection will help us lay down our defensiveness and allow us to admit that we are sinful and ignorant and that we need to be corrected by God's word. Amen? Amen. Standing firm in the hope of the resurrection will show us that time is short and that we need to proclaim the gospel with our words and our lives to draw in those who do not know Jesus. Standing firm in the hope of the resurrection will help us live with courage in the face of sickness and death in the midst of COVID-19. And it will help us love and respect those who are struggling in its wake and may even be afraid of it. Standing firm in the hope of the resurrection and its establishment of Christ as King will help us to remember, as our reading from Philippians so clearly states, that we are citizens of heaven above all else, above all political parties, above any patriotism that comes from this country. We are citizens of heaven first and foremost and therefore servants of Christ. And this will cause us to act today in ways that we can establish justice and righteousness and call others to do the same when we see injustice or when we see slander of people who do not deserve it. If we stand firm in the resurrection as a church, we will strive to find unity with Christ and one another. Mission Fellowship, as we shake off the cobwebs and begin to regather as a people, as we shake off the worldliness that we have found overcoming us, let's recommit ourselves as covenant members within the body of Christ in his local church. And let's recommit to be united in and driven by the kingdom of God and its principles that is amongst us. Let's challenge one another in love and mutual respect to deepen our knowledge of Christ and his word and to sanctify this church. I'm so thankful for some of the the email conversations I'm having with folks and the phone conversations because since our covenant is strong with one another, we can have the hard conversations and not go running for the hills. We can love one another and walk each other through scripture 
And we can come to the knowledge of the truth and the power of God. So let's commit to bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven in our small corner of his creation. Even with this small group, can we commit to do that? Absolutely. Let's proclaim today our commitment to Christ, to his gospel, to his reign of righteousness and justice, and to his people.